everyone and welcome to another episode of the Journey Podcast Season 2. My name's Sarah and for those of you who don't know us, we're a platform that's dedicated to bringing the latest science, evidence-based research and expert thinkers all to make the journey from conception through to pregnancy and early years as healthy as possible. We all know that there are an enormous amount of modern day challenges facing us and we want to use this latest science and innovation and help make that journey as healthy, practical and positive as possible. On today's podcast, we're going to be looking at three subjects we've been looking at over the last few weeks, where there's some innovative science that suggests we might start to think about things in a slightly different way. First one we're going to be looking at is weight loss post-baby, and particularly the old notion that breastfeeding equals weight loss. Well, guess what? It doesn't. And it's about time we stop putting pressure on our bodies. We're going to be looking at the science around what happens to your hormones and why it can prove to be a little bit more tricky to shift the pounds for most of us. Next up, we're going to be looking at the baby's immune system and some very interesting changes that go on both during pregnancy that affects our immune systems and when the baby's born and how it matures and how it gives rise to things like allergies and how it can make us prone to certain sicknesses during pregnancy. Of course, we're going to be looking at what you can do to strengthen this. Finally, we're going to be tackling a subject that many of us, in fact, all of us with kids will face at some point, and that's how to deal with a tantrum. And the latest science actually shows that hugs can really help not only mediate the situation but are also really powerful and positive for a baby's or toddler's brain development. So without further ado let's kick it off. Okay so first up is a bit of a sensitive topic. We're going to be talking all about breastfeeding and postpartum weight loss. Now I don't know about you but it seemed to be long argued that one of the perks of breastfeeding is this postpartum weight loss certainly hasn't quite happened like that for me and actually the science suggests guess what it's not that simple and to those celebrities that are posting pictures 10 minutes after birth with washboard stomachs congratulations on that but you are very very much the minority and once again science backs us up so we're going to be taking a look at the reality and even more crucially what's happening in our hormones that means that this is most likely the minority and not the majority Finally, we're going to be looking at the nutrients we have to watch and can get particularly depleted during breastfeeding. And there's another reason why you shouldn't be trying too hard to shed those initial post-baby pounds. Okay, so first up, 13 kilos of fat burn in six months. Sounds too good to be true? Well, guess what? It is. And here's what the science really says about the technicalities of breastfeeding and weight loss. So taking a step back, Producing breast milk takes a lot of energy, approximately 600 calories a day during the first two months of exclusive breastfeeding, and that then rises to 670 calories on average per day between three and six months. So in theory, all else being equal, that should equal pretty major weight loss. In fact, if everything else remained the same, six months of exclusive breastfeeding would burn a whopping 117,000 calories. Now that would basically mean you're shedding 13 kilos of body fat. Obviously not what we normally see. So something else is likely going on. And guess what? It's all about your hormones. And these are also the reason why you're always hungry when you're breastfeeding. 
Now, we often think of hormonal fluctuations during pregnancy, but actually the power of hormones most certainly does not end in pregnancy. Breastfeeding also causes powerful fluctuations and specifically related to one hormone, prolactin, and that's the hormone that's re responsible effectively for milk production. Interestingly enough, prolactin is also associated with increased appetite and increased food intake. So the chances are breastfeeding is making us hungrier, more likely to take in more food and energy, and that is all designed to offset the energy requirements of milk production. Pretty clever stuff if you think about it. Ultimately, our bodies are just ensuring that a baby gets exactly what they need without completely depleting us in the process. Funnily enough, the research completely correlates with this. What we know when we look at weight loss around breastfeeding is that it takes around four to six months for breastfeeding associated weight loss. And even then, it's not for everyone, and nor is it necessarily a lot. So one meta-analysis, which is a review of many studies, showed that on average, there were no significant differences between breastfeeding and non-breastfeeding women in terms of weight loss in the early months. And even following that, so from months four to six of exclusive breastfeeding, it's at most a couple of kilos difference. And the thing is, if you think about it, breastfeeding often requires a lot of time sitting down. So in reality, we don't tend to see massive weight loss associated with breastfeeding, and it takes at least four months to kick in. Now, of course, there are a variety of factors behind this. So of course, it's the prolactin rise, meaning we want to eat more, and in fact, it is recommended to eat as many as 500 extra calories a day to ensure good milk supply anyway. And then some people appear to be more sensitive to this hormone than others. So some people get hungrier, some people store more, and of course, everyone reacts differently. And of course, as we said, less physical activity also reduces how many calories we burn. Now, the other thing is whether you're exclusively feeding with breast milk, that also tends to make a difference. However, there is one certainty in all of this. Breastfeeding does require a lot of nutrients, and there are certain ones that science shows are most used and most vulnerable to depletion. Now, what we do know is that the B vitamins, vitamin A, copper, selenium, iodine, and DHA and EPA are really important during the breastfeeding journey. And in fact, some nutrients are required up to 90% more than normal during breastfeeding, which is another reason why we might crave certain foods and why our appetite goes up in order to satisfy these needs. Now, here are some of the increased demands breastfeeding puts on our recommended daily intake. Vitamin B12, which by the way, anyone who's a vegan should be taking as a supplement. That's around a 20% increase need. Vitamin A, nearly a 90% increase. On the flip side, without all the extra blood, we need 50% less iron, hooray, and then as much as 30 to 90% increased demand for minerals like copper, selenium, and iodine. Finally, and this is obviously good for the immune system as well, a 50% increase in demand for vitamin C and zinc. Now, DHA and EPA, also known as omega-3s, I think fish oils, these are particularly important for proper development of the brain and the immune system, and we've got much more to come on that. So it's now more than ever, we really need to ensure our bodies are nutritionally well supported. So this postpartum weight loss or lack of can be frustrating, but the above stats really show the huge nutrient demand breastfeeding requires. 
both in terms of calories and micronutrients. So the key is not calorie restriction, but instead focusing on supporting our bodies with high quality whole foods. And all the research really points to a Mediterranean diet as the absolute best bet. And what is a Mediterranean diet? We'll think healthy fats, avocados, that type of thing, olive oil, high quality proteins, so plant-based and fish with meat occasionally, grains, whole grains, and lots of fresh fruit and vegetables. Empty calories certainly won't help us do this, nor will it help any weight loss associated post-breastfeeding. Now, pregnancy also takes a huge toll on the body. So adequate nutrition is required not only for breastfeeding, but also for physical and mental recovery. And in fact, good nutritional support has even been shown to reduce the chances of postpartum depression anxiety. We've got some stuff on the website about that. And finally, we can't possibly get through a podcast without mentioning the microbiome. And this is also very important. Now, one of the most powerful elements of breast milk is the density of both pro and prebiotics that help build a baby's own microbial landscape. We know this is really important for brain development, for immunity, for hormones, and even mental health. So ensuring your own gut health is in tip-top condition is a great way of promoting this. And once again, a Mediterranean diet is a great start. So, and it's also avoiding like the basic things that you probably already know. So avoiding processed foods, refined sugars, alcohol, and focusing on probiotic foods like kefir, sauerkraut, yogurt, and prebiotic foods, things like artichokes, bananas, oats, berries, garlic, flaxseed. We've got a lot more up on the site if you want us to check out some more. As for exercise, an interesting one, regular resistance training, once of course you've got sign off from your doctor, in a moderate way has been shown to be a powerful tool to even improve your milk. And once again, we've got more up on the site about that. So don't beat yourself up if you don't end up looking like a supermodel 10 minutes after birth. It is most certainly not the norm, nor is it actually something to aspire to necessarily. Everybody does react differently, but there are powerful hormonal reasons which mean that it could well take at least four to six months for your body to start really adjusting. So it's time to focus on your baby and feeding yourself with all the good things that you can. Next, we're gonna be looking at boosting the immune system. Why pregnant women and babies are more susceptible to certain bugs and allergies. And most importantly, of course, as with all of this stuff, is what you can do to make it a little bit easier. Now, the immune system is, of course, a wonderful thing. But what we do know is that it changes depending on what stage of life we're in. And pregnancy and our earliest days of life are two prime examples. So we're going to be taking a look at how this changes, where there are areas of greater vulnerability, and the science behind how you can support both of these two crucial stages. Now there is a notion that a pregnant woman's immune system is suppressed, but that's not strictly true. What is true is that it's certainly different. Now, of course, our immune system is designed to recognize foreign cells and destroy them. That's the whole point. It's a massive defense system. Therefore, actually, it's a bit of a miracle that when the egg is fertilized and starts to grow, it's not rejected by the body because after all, 50% of that is foreign. Now, this is where it gets really clever. Now, in order to accommodate a growing baby, our immune system does change. And during normal adult life, there's a balance between what we call Th1 and Th2 immune function. 
sounds a bit complicated, but in a nutshell, this helps us tolerate environmental exposures that enter our bodies, which is the Th2 side, and it also helps to ward off bacterial and viral infections. That's the Th1 side. During our adult life, both of these should be functioning quite nicely. But during pregnancy, in order to allow these cells not to be rejected, our immune system shifts, basically down-regulating the Th2 functions. Now this is why it can be that pregnant women are more vulnerable to bacterial and viral infections. It's also why a pregnant woman can have adverse effects from things like influenza infections. And that is why it's so important to get certain immunizations during pregnancy, particularly the flu shot. Because unfortunately, we've found out that getting a bad flu episode during pregnancy can really have some long-lasting and negative effects. Now, when our immune system doesn't do this shift as, we sh as it should, we can get issues crop up like recurrent miscarriage. Now, pioneering thinking like well, from people like Dr. Hassan Shiata, who we've done a podcast episode with on season one, highly recommend tuning into that, argue that recurrent miscarriage is in some instances caused by our immune systems not shifting as they should. So of course, this can then lead to the body rejecting what it perceives as foreign cells. And that again, gives some indication as to how important this delicate balance is for maintaining pregnancy. We also know that during pregnancy, it's a mother's immune system that supports a baby. And we know that certain antibodies pass through the placenta to the developing baby. In fact, research from Harvard and MIT in the largest study to date shows that COVID antibodies are in fact passed through the placenta and may offer protection to a developing baby. And that can happen whether or not you've had the COVID vaccine or you've had a COVID infection. So out of some bad stuff, some good stuff can come. We also know that 70% of the mother's immune system resides in our favourite topic, the microbiome. So that's the bacteria, the fungi and the viruses within areas like the gut. Now this provides the basis for a baby's immune system, which actually starts to develop as early as pregnancy. And that's then really picked up as a baby passes through the birth canal and then has skin to skin contact and has breast milk. Now what's really clever and interesting is that certain cells called the dendritic cells from the mother's gut will actually travel up towards the breast tissue in preparation for birth and within breast milk. So once again, really clever stuff. Now a new baby's immune system will mirror his or her mother's because of all these aforementioned issues. We do know, however, that in the early days, a new baby is really vulnerable to infection and that's partly as a result of an immature immune system, but it's also the fact that it mirrors a mother's more Th2 dominant immune system during pregnancy. So once again, less Th1, which includes defense cells like lymphocytes, and that equals more risk of bacterial and viral infections. And that's why it's so important to practice good hygiene with a new baby in the earliest days and why things like sterilizers are recommended for the first six months. Now, how do we help a baby's immature immune system shift into balance, which is obviously key for things like allergies? Now we know it takes at least a couple of months for a baby's immune system to start to shift towards a more normal adult balance between this Th1 and Th2. And in fact, the reality is it will take a good few years for this shift to completely happen. We also know that if you have a more dominant Th2 system, it's more likely to react to allergens, which is one of the reasons why babies may display an allergy intolerance, which they later grow out of. So how can we help this shift happen? 
Now this is where one of our favorite friends, the omega-3s come in. And evidence has shown that DHA and EPA, which are two omega-3s, may help aid this immune system shift. Now specifically, this appears to play a role in things like chronic inflammation. And chronic inflammation is basically our body's immune system reacting in an abnormal way. And we know is the root of a lot of trouble within the body. But new research is indicating that it also might help shift towards a more balanced immune system for a baby. Once again, that can help defend against bacteria and viruses better, but can also potentially help reduce the risk of an immune system firing up at something that's not an enemy, i.e. in the case of an allergic reaction. We've got a lot about that on our site. Question is, how do you get more DHA and EPA? Now, during pregnancy, eating at least a couple of portions of fatty fish a week has been shown to play a role in the development of the immune system and even supporting things like neurological development. Now, what about if you don't eat fish? Well, obviously a supplement, as always speak to your doctor first, is recommended. And most of the dosages are recommended to be at least 500 milligrams and it's worth really looking at your prenatal supplement because most of them only contain up to around 200 milligrams. So once again, if in doubt, check with your doctor on this. But this also applies to breastfeeding women. We know that breast milk is key to protecting and helping a baby's immune system develop. And it's full of antibodies and other prebiotic factors which can help develop a baby's own microflora, which is obviously home to the immune system. Now the good news before, this is just a, a call once again to just do breast milk, the research shows that formula that's fortified with DHA, as many of them now are, can also help. Because let's face it, breastfeeding isn't always possible. But the research has shown that supplemented formula can have as good an effect when it comes to this rebalance as breast milk. So obviously great news and again something to discuss with your paediatrician if you'd like to further supplement your baby. Now, other factors for supporting immune health the old thinking, of course, was that vitamin D was more important for bone and teeth health. But actually, we're greatly appreciating its, its other role in things like immune function and development. And the reality is many of us are deficient in this as well. So many guidelines are now recommending at least 400 international units a day in pregnancy and also a supplement for a breastfeeding baby. Research has shown that getting enough can even help reduce the risk of infections and asthma. Once again, as with any supplement, always chat to your doctor first. For any more on this topic, we've got lots up on the site, so take a look. Finally, this is a subject that every single parent of a toddler will have gone through or will go through at some point, and that is the age-old tantrum. Now, what would you think if we said toddler tantrums are actually a good thing? You probably think we're crazy, but actually, this is what the science says. And this is what the science says is the best way to help them come along. Now, tantrums are an absolute fact of early life, and they can be infuriating for everyone involved. But perhaps you can start to think about them slightly differently. And the science says they're actually a positive part of a toddler's brain development. Yes, really. Now, we try and stay well away from parenting, but we are really interested in anything that has to do with health and development, particularly when understanding it better can help us deal with it. So we're gonna take a quick look at what's going on with tantrums, why they're happening, and hopefully by understanding them a little bit better, 
you might feel slightly better when your little one is having his or her next meltdown. Because let's face it, we need all the help we can get. So let's start with some of the basics. When we're born, we're born with billions of brain cells. However, you're not born with many brain cell connections. And these basically will form over time and are formed based on your experiences. Now we've got um, much more information on this uh, on our site with our resident expert psychotherapist Christopher Sarawine who's talking more about the formation of what's called neural connectivity. But what you need to effectively know is that a tantrum, which is an emotional experience, is, is part of formation of these connections that are so vital to how our brains develop. Now these typically start on average towards the start of the second year as the brain reaches a certain point of development and they should, in theory, taper off before the fourth year. In fact, between about 30 and 36 months, over 90% of toddlers are having regular tantrums. Now, most of us rationally know that when a toddler temper tantrum is in full swing, it's because they feel their needs or their wants are not being met in some way. But even worse for them, they feel they can't communicate this, nor can they control the magnitude of it. So it's pretty frustrating for them as well. Now, what exactly happens during a tantrum? Well, the strong emotions that go alongside a temper tantrum trigger effectively a hormonal release of intense stress hormones. And as an adult, for most of us, the rational part of the brain, which is the prefrontal cortex, can hopefully regulate some of these strong emotions that come from the emotional part of the brain, which is the limbic brain. But for toddlers, this part is not yet fully developed. So this happens over time, and as they learn and the brain develops, and so having a tantrum is just part of this growth and learning process. So a toddler who's having an extreme emotional meltdown is not bad. They just do not yet have the tools to manage and regulate these emotions. And some research has shown that toddler anguish can even evoke physical pain. So it's definitely not an easy ride for them either. So how does the brain develop to cope and regulate these emotions? Well, as a toddler has more tantrums, more of the connections between the brain cells form and the formation of these can hopefully allow a child to properly manage stress and emotions later in life. In fact, there's been a lot of work done over the years on attachment theory and brain development of children. And what we do know is that appropriate handling of temper tantrums can be a powerful tool in helping a child develop these all important coping mechanisms to deal with stresses in later life. So how can we help as parents? Now, once again, we're not a parenting platform and we do try and stay away from any opinions on what a parent should or shouldn't do. In this case, however, there is a biochemical part to play, which is good to understand and be aware of. Now, as we said, it's all about helping manage these tantrum hormones. Now, a child is born with a fully fledged alarm and fully formed alarm in the brain that will react to any kind of perceived danger. And this is known as the amygdala. Now this is a survival mechanism and it's activated from the moment they're born. So any stressful situation will bring on the fight or flight response, which then triggers the release of hormones that we all as adults know too well, like cortisol. This also happens in a toddler meltdown. This is where the power of a hug comes in. Now the toddler does not have the tools to cope with this rush of emotions. So as parents or caregivers, we need to help them along. Now we've seen in many of the theories over the last few decades about the power of touch. Now physical touch and hugs can elicit a hormonal release of something called oxytocin. Now this not only calms the stress release in the body, 
but it can even affect how genes express themselves, specifically allowing more production of receptors for these particular hormones. So it even has an epigenetic effect the more that this is produced. So although you might sometimes not feel like giving a screaming toddler a hug, approaching a tantrum in a calm and kind manner can be one of the best ways. Now, of course, you also have to manage this with keeping healthy boundaries. So it does not mean you have to give in to what the toddler wants, but standing your ground, showing firm, consistent and stable boundaries is also key for positive development. And the calmer you are, the better. And it can just be a simple hug after their tantrum as more than enough. Now, we do also know that distraction can be another tool in the armory of dealing with a tantrum. And once again, looking at the science behind this, we've seen a number of studies showing benefits when it comes to emotional regulation when a child uses distraction. In fact, one study showed a particular benefit where children were directly encouraged to use distraction. Now, this, of course, is not to do with judgment on ourselves or of others when it comes to raising people, and everyone deals with this in their own way. And certainly no one handles tantrums in the perfect way every time. So this is just simply some information to think and digest and perhaps a tool and certainly a way that you can help rationalise what's going on in your own head when these things are going on. Because let's face it, they are tough. But the bottom line here is when while tantrums are managed carefully, they can be a positive tool for enabling your child to develop positive ways to cope with emotional regulation and brain development. So the next time your child has a big one, just remind yourself it's all good and good luck. Now, for more from us, please check out our website at thejourneydot.com or check us out on Instagram. We always like to hear from everyone. And if you do like our podcast, please, please review it and give us a rating. We would really appreciate it and it will help keep our podcast going.